We're going to be starting a new book of the Bible this morning. And uh, so if you have your Bibles and you can find the book of Nahum, N-A-H-U-M, one of the most important uh, pages in your Bible is the table of contents. So don't be afraid to look there because it's only three chapters long and uh, I can't even turn there without a bookmark. So um, don't, don't feel embarrassed about that. Let me read Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. We will look at this text toward the conclusion of the sermon, but I'm going to do some background work first and foremost. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Cranky God. It's passages like this that uh, cause people a lot of trouble. Because this is where we get the idea that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. And Nahum's going to demonstrate that. Because the greatest picture of God's anger, wrath, jealousy, and vindication actually came in the New Testament, not the Old so we're starting a new book. We've been uh, looking at the minor prophets. We just finished the book of Micah, and Nahum picks up where, where Micah left off in a way. And there are certain similarities, and you'll say, Dave, why are we doing this uh, book? Because God saw fit that his people need to study the book of Nahum. It's three chapters long. You can read it in about 10 to 14 minutes, uh, depending on how fast you read, and I commend it to you. And so we're going to answer several questions this morning. What is the book about? Um, what is uh, not only the content, but who was it written to originally? And, and then I'm going to hope to introduce you to the idea of what does it have to do with you and me? And in an effort to do that, I want to give you some historical background and context so that we can understand what's going on historically in the world at the time. And that's where we'll pick up with Micah and kind of jump forward. So from verse 1, we understand that it's an oracle concerning Nineveh. I'll get to the maps in just a few minutes. 
Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And if you've been with us in our study of the book of Micah, Assyria has been the predominant problem for the entire nation of Israel and the world for the matter at at that particular period of history. Micah went from about 750 BC to 701 BC. And and then there's going to be a slight gap of maybe about 50 years before Nahum picks up. All right, so there's kind of a 50-year period of silence. Micah's predominant ministry was speaking to the southern kingdom of Israel at the time, and we call that southern kingdom Judah. And Judah is where Jerusalem is. It was the capital city of the southern kingdom. This is all on the exam at the end of the semester, so I just want you to know all that. Okay, there's going to be dates, and there's going to be, you know, so if I mention this stuff, it's obviously very, very important. So Assyria has monopolized the world at the time. And, and, and I'm going to demonstrate from the map here in just a minute. If you have your maps, pull them out. And if you don't, I'm sorry you don't have them. It may be because you don't care about a map, and that's okay. We love you anyways if you don't love maps. But I love maps, and so I'm going to do a little map work, and that's just the way it's going to be, because I want you to see what's going on from about 701 B.C. to about 650 or, or thereabouts uh, B.C., kind of that 100-year period of time. We now know the content of the letter or the content of the book is about Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, and I'm going to point that out to you in just a minute. We'll get to what the implications of that are and to whom it's written in just a minute. So, if you have your maps, I'm going to point out Nineveh, the capital city. Nineveh is right here, okay? Everybody, I know you can't see this, it just makes me feel good to point, all right? So what happened during the time of Micah, and Micah predicted all of this, and it all came to fruition. The Assyrian Empire moved in this direction, conquered all this northern region. They started to move south. They took over Syria and Damascus. They continued to move south. They took over uh, Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel at the time. This is all during Micah's day. They moved into Judah, They conquered and destroyed about 50 cities and towns surrounding Jerusalem. They came right up to the gates of Jerusalem while Micah was preaching. And God turned away Assyria from the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was spared for a time. But that was not the full result of what Assyria did. Assyria continued down. Oh, my state. Oh, that's terrible. My tack, my tack. Okay, my tack's back. Had a crisis there for a moment. Came down the coast, moved along uh, this area, and actually moved into Egypt and conquered all of Egypt all the way down to about the bottom of our map, 500 miles south of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, everything in Egypt... The, of importance is centered on either side of the Nile River. And they came down and conquered a town called Thebes. 
T-H-E-B-E-S, all right? They came down 500 miles. So if you look at this little inserted map here, and you see everything that's shaded in blue, you see the full extent of the Assyrian Empire at the time of Micah and Nahum, all right? They ruled the world. They ruled the world. And I mean the whole world. Rome wasn't around. Greece wasn't around. Assyria ruled the world. Now, here's the thing about Assyria. They weren't nice. In fact, not only did they conquer with the sword and the spear, they tortured. They, I, I mean, I could go into detail, but I'm not here for the shock value. But the means by which they put hundreds of thousands to people to death was treacherous, vulgar, unkind in every way. So here's the entire Assyrian army and Israel is right in the center of it. And God had said that he was going to use Assyria as an instrument of his judgment upon his people, most particularly the northern kingdom, as those people were taken into exile into Assyria. And, and then they came down into the southern kingdom. It, Jerusalem was spared, but Micah in his book said, ha, God is not done judging his people yet because the Babylonians are soon to come. And what's going to happen, and history has borne this out, is the Babylonians are actually going to conquer the Assyrian Empire. But that's about 50 years off or so from the time of Nahum. So what Nahum is talking about is talking about how God is going to bring judgment and justice upon the Assyrian Empire and he uses Nineveh as their capital city as the means by which he's talking about this entire empire, all right? So if what I'm trying to say, and this is very important so that we understand this, Nahum is probably preaching from the southern kingdom, and since the only place that's really survived the Assyrian assault is Jerusalem, he is likely preaching from Jerusalem and teaching. And if you had this prophet show up, and we all know how prophets are received in the Bible, and he starts preaching that God is going to judge the greatest empire in the entire known world, your responses would be wide and varied. First of all, I think the vast majority of people would say, yeah, right. That's not going to happen. It doesn't matter that 50 years before Micah said the Assyrians are coming and they're going to conquer you. And in fact, that happened. Now Assyria is in power. They're in place. They've conquered Egypt. They've conquered Damascus. They've conquered Syria. They've conquered the northern kingdom. They've conquered most of the south. God, you're really going to wipe out Assyria? That is response number one. The second response, I think, if you were in the southern kingdom hearing Nahum preach, would be yeehaw. 
There's nobody that deserves judgment from God more than the Assyrians. They wiped out these countries I don't really care about, but they wiped out my northern brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts and uncles. My hometown was destroyed. I had to flee into Jerusalem. I saw terrible atrocities. Bring it on. Those are the kind of the people with a little bit of faith, you know. They, they want to believe that God will bring judgment on those terrible, terrible people. Because who doesn't want judgment and justice? We deserve it, we want it, and if God can provide it, that will be terrific. The problem with that response is this. It immediately moves people into this thinking about us and them. You know what I'm saying? The people who need judgment who are terrible sinners, who deserve the anger of God, and I'm sure glad I'm not them. Because I'm part of the people of God, I am okay. Okay? And so you get this, this well, judgment and justice is great for them, but there's no thought or introspection on the idea that perhaps... I'm a sinner that has a problem with sin that needs to be dealt with, and how is that going to be dealt with? And we're going to get to that in just a minute or two. And then the third response are the very, very few, the very, very few who say, I trust God and I believe that he hates sin everywhere. And he has the right to judge and bring judgment on Assyria, but I should also look at myself. How is my sin being dealt with? Because really and truly, I'm honest enough to say I'm not very different from them. Because one of the major themes, both in Micah and Nahum, is that God hates sin. And that God judges sin. And that sin is a universal problem. That it is not just relegated to the Assyrians. It's not relegated to the Babylonians who come next. It's not relegated to the Persians who come after them. Sin is a universal problem. And sin in the Bible always has to be dealt with. Sin never goes unjudged. Now this is Sunday School 101, but sin is dealt with in one of two ways. Only ever and completely, sin is only ever dealt with in one of two ways. A person in the Old Testament has trust and faith in the way that God is going to provide in the future for sin to be dealt with. The people of our age look back upon the way in which God provided judgment to rest on his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. And then he rose again, vindicated, showing that that sin was paid for. 
That's one way in which the judgment for sin is dealt with. The other way is people say, I don't need to worry about God judging my sin. And they spend an eternity in hell being judged for their sin. But sin is always judged. You see, that's the point. It is always, always judged. And it has to be judged. And so this is a picture of how God is going to judge it in human time to a people who didn't have faith in him. All right? And, and so the question becomes, who is this book written to? Who is the book written to? We know it's written about the Assyrian Empire. Okay? We know it's written about them. But if... Nahum wanted them as his first and direct audience. Why didn't he go to Nineveh like Jonah did 120 years before? Right? God sent Jonah, the first minor prophet that we looked at, to Nineveh. He didn't want to go because he didn't like the, the, the Assyrians. And I don't blame him for not liking the Assyrians. They're ugly, nasty, dirty, sinful people. But ultimately, by God's hand, he ended up in Nineveh, the place we're talking about here, preached repentance, and the entire nation came to faith. The entire nation came to faith from the king to the donkey. But here we are a hundred years later, and God is calling out judgment on these same people. And these people for the past 50 years have been terrorizing the entire known world. So obviously the repentance that came from Jonah's preaching was very short-lived. Less than a generation. Less than a generation were these people faithful to the God of Israel, right? They repented, they came into relationship with God, and 50 years later, they're conquering nations and now destroying the people of God. And God says, sin is a universal problem, and I'm going to deal with Assyria. But the original audience was God's people themselves. Because, and I'll explain this to you in just a minute, the people of God hadn't changed either. We saw that at the end of Micah. After the crisis was averted and after the Assyrian army pulled back from the gates of Jerusalem, how was Jerusalem and Israel in the south described? Micah said, you're not safe with your neighbor. You're not safe with your brother. You're not even safe. Don't even trust the woman you're in bed with. Nothing has changed. You are unrepentant and all the rest of this. And so here we are 50 years after Assyria pulling back from the gates of Jerusalem. And, and let me just try to give you a timeline. If you have your Bibles open, look with me at chapter, chapter 3. And, uh, and I'm just going to read. Uh, I mentioned that, that Assyria had gone down into Egypt. Verse 8 of chapter 3 of Nahum says, Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, a sea, and water and wall? In other words, Nahum mentions the fall of Thebes in Egypt. 
Now, the fall of Thebes in Egypt, this is on the exam, so pay attention, occurred in 663 B.C. In 663 B.C. Nineveh, we know historically, fell in 612 B.C. So, so the period that, that uh, Nahum is speaking about is somewhere between 663 and 612 B.C. Now, I'll tell you why this is important in just a minute, okay? So kind of a 50-year period of time is, is when Nahum was speaking and he's prophesying, saying, Nineveh, the nation, the empire of Assyria is going to fall. Now, why is that important? Because who is king and what's going on in the southern kingdom where Nahum is speaking? All right? I know you're curious and you're wanting to know this desperately. Hezekiah was the king at the end of Micah. And Hezekiah was a good and godly man. He, didn't, he, he brought in a lot of spiritual and religious reform. He brought God's word back to life in worship and, and different things like that. But he had a son whose name was Manasseh. And Manasseh became king after him. And Manasseh was king during the period that Nahum wrote. Now here's the problem with Manasseh. He was the worst king in the southern kingdom's history. Because what he did was he took all the reforms of his father and reversed them. He persecuted the godly prophets and the godly preachers of his day. He reintroduced Baal worship, who was the predominant god of the foreigners. And he reintroduced idolatry on a wholesale level. As a matter of fact, he reintroduced the worship of the god Moloch, who was served by infant sacrifice. Now, before we just go, man, that was 2,700 years ago, weren't they just radical pagans? There are nations of which we are a part who sacrifice their children. So it is really, in many ways, no different. But this is what was going on in the southern kingdom of Israel at the time. This people who had just a few years before seen the miraculous deliverance of the city of Jerusalem, had seen God's hand, had heard Micah's word calling them to repentance, who was now bathing in the glories of peace and, and foreign gods. But Manasseh did more than this. Manasseh tried to make peace with the Assyrians. And he wanted to reestablish trade because they had a boatload of money down from Egypt and up from the north. And he said, you know what we got a lot of? We have olive oil. Now, olive oil to us means very little. But if you were to think in terms of crude oil, it had the same importance in that day. And so Manasseh not only brought in religious fallacies, he started to get in bed with the enemies that God was going to say we were going to destroy, okay? 
So the people in the southern kingdom were responding in one of the three ways that the Assyrians would. Now, the Assyrians in Nineveh heard this message. Don't misunderstand me. They got word because Assyrians were all over the southern kingdom. They still had Jerusalem surrounded. Their soldiers were everywhere, and they were traveling like ants from Egypt back up to Nineveh. So what Nahum was preaching is getting to Nineveh, but of course, if you're the ruler of the entire known world, what are you going to say about the God of Israel? Where was he 50 years ago? We put a whooping on you like nobody's ever seen before. I know that your God predicted that we were coming, and I know that your God is predicting we're going to be wiped out, but, you know, really, come on, get serious. But that's the same response of the people in the south. Really? You're going to conquer the Assyrian nation? Or go to it, God. If you can pull it off, I'm all behind you. That would be great. And then there's what we'll call the remnant. The people who take God's word seriously. And we'll look at that response in just a minute. So that's kind of the historical backdrop, what the book is about. And there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of frustration on God's part. But what we need to remember behind all of this are several things that are very important. The God of the Old Testament is the God we serve here today. Sin has to be judged. And it is judged. It's either judged in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ or it will be suffered individually by those who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has a right to be angry. And he has a right to judge. And he has a right to rule because he created all things. He has the right to bring any judgment to bear that he so chooses. And I said this before, but I want to be very clear about this. The clearest picture of the jealousy, the anger, the vindication of God in all the Bible is on the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, at the cross. And that is easy to forget. We are grateful for what he's done. But when I read these first six verses, I want you to see that this language was poured out on his son so that we do not face the judgment for our sin. That's the important thing to remember. So let me just go. We know about, oh, let me tell you everything I know about Nam. His name means comfort. The town that he's from, scholars cannot agree. We have no idea where he comes from. That's everything we know about Nam. So that's his pedigree, his background. So far as I read a lot that told me that. So that's what I got for you about Nam. Looking at verse 2 again with this background in mind. But keep this also in mind. 
Do not think about us and them. Think about the universe whose sin problem needs to be dealt with. And this is God's perspective on sin, both for the Assyrians and his people. So when he calls, his, when he calls people his enemies, he's calling people who are part of the nation of Israel his enemies because they're rejecting his offer of dealing with sin. You see what I'm saying? Verse 2, the Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Now we have a switch. It's very strange. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. We have an introduction to God who is jealous, angry, and vindictive, so to speak. All three, God has the right to hold. We may not. But he is slow to anger. Now, where has he demonstrated his slowness to anger? The Assyrian Empire has only been around for 50 years, but the nation of Israel has been around for centuries, having heard multitudes of prophets say, repent, 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 repent. And they have ignored it categorically from the beginning to the end. God's slowness to anger is being demonstrated toward his own people who should have known, who should have listened. He continues in verse 4, God rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, and the bloom of Lebanon withers. Bashan and Carmel, we, we met Bashan in Hosea when Hosea called the ladies from there the cows of Bashan. Um, not very flattering, but Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon are always the symbols of the most lush, fertile, green, lovely places on earth. In other words, God is going to wipe those out. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. If you remember from Matthew's account of the crucifixion, when I'm talking about jealousy and judgment and vindication, the sky goes dark. There are earthquakes all over Jerusalem. The rocks are broken in two. The dead rise from the grave. That is the same language that's being described here about the anger of God against sin. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. This is a God, plain and simply, who does not tolerate sin. And it talks about the reality of the judgment for sin, both against Assyria and against his people in the south, and the international universal problem of sin that has to be dealt with. But then we come to verse 7 and there's this shift. Now, Nahum make, follows kind of the same pattern that Micah did 
And that is that he speaks about the judgment of God against sin. And then he speaks words of comfort or salvation. Those words can be interchangeable in Nahum, all right? Following his own name. Verse 7. After all that anger, all that crankiness, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Now that may be the most important sentence in the book. God knows those who take refuge in him. I gave you three responses. They're childish. One is go get them, God. They deserve it. There's no way you're going to bring about judgment against a a people and a power that is that great. And then a very small minority who say, I am going to take God at his word. Now, what will that mean to that people? That will mean a people who, like Micah and like Nahum that we'll see in the future, who say, I have a problem with sin that needs to be dealt with, that God has a right to judge me for. I I have a problem that only God can deal with. And so whether Old Testament or New Testament, I find my refuge in Him, and God knows who you are. And what I believe is going to happen in the book of Nahum is that it's going to demand of the Assyrians, of the southern kingdom of Israel, and of us to ask some very hard questions. Because most of us in this room will say, there was a period at my life where I put my faith and trust in Christ. But then the question is, am I living day to day as that individual who finds his security in the stronghold of God? Because that will make a difference. Or am I still finding my trust, my faith, my confidence, and my security Someplace else. I won't even list what it may be. Doesn't matter. Am I finding my confidence someplace other than in what God provides as the solution to my problem of sin? That's the question. Because depending on how we answer that question, it will affect how we live. We earn nothing. I don't earn the favor of God. I can never buy God off. But my sin problem is great enough that he has to take care of it. And the question is, do I believe that enough that it affects who I am and how I live? And that question eradicates the us and them. It eradicates the go get them God. They may deserve it, and there's nothing wrong with justice and judgment, but I need it too. So I either find my security in what God has done through Christ or I continue to have a problem, you see. And that's what Nahum is going to address as we plow this thing through. The tremendous picture of judgment 
but the reality that he knows those who take refuge in him. And we want to be them. And the number may be few. So let me pray. And I'm going to pray for the meal that we're going to have here as well. Father in heaven, um, I hope that this introduction has been not only informative, that it, but it begins to help us ask questions of ourselves, that we avoid the conversation of us and them, but that we begin to see that here you spoke to your people who were as disobedient as the enemy. And we want to be those who find ourselves living in repentance and faith. And so may this book help us understand that better. Thank you for the food that's been prepared and for those who prepared it. And we pray, Father, that our time would be sweet together. In Christ's name, amen.